Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today I'm going to read to you a speech. Of course, I'm sure you've already guessed that there's going to be a catch at the end. I would never just read you a speech for no reason. The reason I'm reading you this speech is because it is extremely relevant in the context of the world in which we now live. Some people find themselves still damaged from a COVID infection they suffered years ago at this point. Others find themselves in ongoing suffering from a vaccine they received. The end result being that millions of people around the world find themselves in ongoing suffering burdened by many questions, but finding very few answers. I believe this speech, on a very basic level, can begin to answer these questions. Maybe not specifically or in detail, but it serves as a course shift that can get us all headed in the right direction. I know, I'm keeping it shrouded in mystery, but let me just read you the speech and listen to what he has to say, and then we can talk about it afterward. speech begins. It's not without emotion that I address this assembly on the experiments that have brought me through the most gracious favor of the Caroline Institute, the highest reward that a scientist has the right to hope for. I ask your indulgence in speaking of my own research, as I must do, and in setting out the findings that have given anaphylaxis a leading place in general pathology over the last decade. First, I feel I must explain and indeed justify the use of the word itself, for it may seem somewhat bar barbarous at first glance. This neologism is invented, I invented 12 years ago on the assumption, which I think is still valid, that a new idea calls for a new word in this name of scientific precision of language. Phylaxis, a word seldom used, stands in the Greek for protection. Anaphylaxis will thus stand for the opposite. Anaphylaxis from its Greek etymological source therefore means that state of an organism in which it is rendered hypersensitive instead of being protected. To make this plain, we will consider the example of a subject that has received a poison. Let us suppose the dosage to be moderate, and that after a few days the subject is, or at least appears to be, normal. If at this point a further injection is given of the same dosage of the same poison, what will happen? There are three possibilities. The first and simplest is that there has been no change in the organism, and that in receiving the same dosage as one month previously, exactly the same phenomena will result, in exactly the same conditions. Naturally, this is what happens most of the time. Scientists and doctors work on this assumption when they repeat the intoxication at one-month intervals. The second possibility is that the subject has become less sensitive. In other words, the preceding intoxication has produced a certain condition of tolerance, or non-sensitivity. This will mean that a stronger dose is necessary at the second injection to give the same results. This is the case of relative immunization, or as it is sometimes called, of mithridatism. The most remarkable case of this tolerance is to be seen when opium or morphine are used. People who take morphine injections need stronger and stronger doses for the morphine to take effect. Some unhappy morphine addicts get to the point of standing a dose of 20 grams, whereas one decigram is dangerous in a normal subject. It's been known for persons to drink one liter of laudanum per day while one drop of laudanum produces already some effect. These two cases of unchanged sensitivity or stability and of diminished sensitivity or habituation have been known since long. Now I've shown that there's a third possibility, frequently to be observed in certain conditions 
which I have specified. This is of heightened sensitivity. The first injection, instead of protecting the organism, renders it more fragile and more susceptible. This is anaphylaxis. These are the circumstances under which I first observed this phenomenon. You will allow me to go into some details on the origins. You will find that it is by no means the result of profound thought, but a simple observation, almost a fortuitous one, so that my merit has only been in letting myself see the facts which were plain before me. In tropical waters, coloterata are to be found floating on the surface, also known as facelia, Portuguese galleys. The basic structure of these creatures is a pocket filled with air so that they can float like a bladder. A, a buco-anal cavity is subjoined to this pocket with very long tentacles which hang in the water. These feelers sometimes run to two or three meters long and are equipped with small devices which adhere like sucking cups to objects encountered. Within each of these innumerable suction cups is a pinpoint which drives into the foreign body that is being touched. At the same time, this pinpoint causes penetration of a subtle but strong poison, which is contained in the tentacles, so that contact with a feeler of a facilia is tantamount to a multiple injection of point poison. On touching a facilia, an acute sensation of pain is felt immediately, due to the penetration of this liquid venom. This is similar in relative intensity to a swimmer's mishap when he bumps into a jellyfish in the water. During a cruise on the yacht of Prince Albert of Monaco, the prince advised me to study Fazelia poison. Together with our friends, Georges Richard and Paul Portier, we found that it easily dissolved in glycerol, and that by injecting this glycerol solution, the symptoms of Fazelia poisoning are reproduced. When I came back to France and had no more Fazelia to study, I hit upon the idea of making a comparative study of the tentacles of the Actinia, Actinia equina anemone socata, which can be obtained in large quantities. Fractinia abound on all the rocky shores of Europe. Now, actinia tentacles, treated with glycerol, give off their poison into the glycerol, and the extract is toxic. I have therefore set about finding how toxic it was with Portier. This was quite difficult to do, as it's a slow-acting poison, and three or four days must elapse before it could be known if the dose be fatal or not. I was using a solution of one kilo of glycerol to one kilo of tentacles. The lethal dose was of the order of 0.1 liquid per kilo live weight of subject. But certain of the dogs survived, either because the dose was not strong enough or for some other reason. At the end of two, three, or four weeks, as they seemed normal, I made use of them for a new experiment. An unexpected phenomenon arose, which we thought extraordinary. A dog, when injected previously, even with the smallest dose, say of 0.005 liquid per kilo, immediately showed serious symptoms, vomiting, blood diarrhea, syncope, unconsciousness, asphyxia, and death. This basic experiment was repeated at various times, and by 1902 we were able to state three main factors which are the cornerstone of the history of anaphylaxis. 1. A subject that had a previous injection is far more sensitive than a new subject. 2. That the symptoms characteristic of the second injection, namely swift and total depression of the nervous system, do not in any way resemble the symptoms characterizing the first injection. Three, a three or four week period must elapse before the anaphylactic state results. This is the period of incubation. Once these first factors in anaphylaxis were well grounded, the field opened right up. Thanks to the skilled and fruitful research of many investigators, in 1903, Arthas in Lausanne 
showed that a first intravenous injection of serum on a rabbit causes anaphylaxis. Three weeks after the first injection, the rabbit is hypersensitive to the second injection. The phenomenon of anaphylaxis was becoming of general application. Instead of applying only to toxins and toxalbumins, it held good for all proteins, whether toxic at the first injection or not. Two years later, Rosano and Anderson, two American physiologists, demonstrated in a noteworthy piece of work that the phenomenon of anaphylaxis occurs after every injection of serum, even when the injection is minute, for example, of 0.00001 milliliters, which is an infinitesimally small amount, but nevertheless sufficient to anaphylacticize an animal. They quoted examples of anaphylaxis from all organic liquids, milk, serum, egg, muscle extract. They specified the reaction and clearly showed that of all the subjects, the guinea pig appeared the most sensitive in anaphylactic terms. In 1907, I conducted an experiment which shed light on the pathogeny of anaphylaxis. An anaphylactic state is produced by taking the blood of an anaphylacticized animal and injecting it into a normal animal subject. The anaphylactogen poison is therefore a chemical substance contained in the blood. Such are, I think, the main stages through which our knowledge has passed. I pass now to particular points I wish to stress. The incubation period varies according to the poison used rather than according to the type of animal subject. There is, however, a minimum period of one week in the guinea pig following the injection of milk. With mytilin extracted from the common muscle, mytilus edulis, the incubation period is a fortnight. With the dog, using crepitin extract from hura crepitins, the period is longer, of some four weeks. With the guinea pig, following the injection of serum, on an exhaustive series of experiments, the incubation period is of some 11 days and the reaction symptoms reach their peak at the 14th day, always allowing for considerable variation according to subject. But it's a much harder task to state when the anaphylactic period has actually passed. Most writers incline to the view, and I myself would think them correct in their view, that the anaphylactic state never passes. In other words, once the subject has been anaphylacticized and consequently modified in his chemical constitution, then the subject can never go back to his former state. Return to normal is not possible. Subjects have been known who even after four years from the date of the first serum injection were still sensitive to the unleashing reaction. Let me add in passing that it's an extraordinary phenomenon that so insignificant a quantity of poison can modify the organism to the extent that the succeeding days down long years cannot eradicate this indelible modification. Unfortunately, minute researchers, right, researches on just this point are still lacking. But, in certain, but it certainly looks as though considerable differences will be found in the duration of anaphylactization. Anaphylactic symptoms also vary to a great extent, although the differences are marked rather according to the nature of the experimental animal than according to the nature of the poison used. It is indeed worthy of note to find that the phenomena are constant whatever the poison used. I have made a special study of anaphylaxis in dogs, which permits of greater accuracy in specifying symptoms than in experiments with guinea pig. In the dog, four degrees of anaphylaxis must be distinguished according to intensity. In the lightest form, the main symptom is purience or itching. The animal, let loose, sneezes and gives various shakes of the head as if there was something inconvenient in his ears.
The dog scratches his head and sides with his paws, sometimes frantically. Sometimes he rubs his muzzle against the ground and rolls over. The next stage in anaphylactic intensity is characterized by itching again, but this time more violent. This is followed almost immediately by various symptoms. More rapid breathing, lowered arterial pressure, faster heartbeat, vomiting, blood diarrhea, and rectal tenesmus. At the third degree, depression of the nervous system is such that the itching has gone or almost gone. The animal has no strength to vomit. Diarrhea is marked while the fluid passed from the rectum is often almost wholly blood. The nervous, the nervous symptoms often develop so suddenly and violently that there is no time for colic and diarrhea. Ataxia follows at once. The animal reels as if drunk, the pupils are dilated, the eyes haggard, and after heart-rending cries, the animal falls to the ground, urinating and defecating underneath himself, unconscious, no longer reacting to the excitations and in complete mind blindness. Breathing is labored and agonized. The heartbeats are so faint as to be barely perceptible. Blood pressure hardly reaches the one or two centimeter mercury level. To sum up, all the symptoms point to the central nervous system being the seat of severe and sudden intoxication. This brutal assault of the poison on the nervous system has been called anaphylactic shock. There is a fourth degree of anaphylaxis, it may be said, which is more serious still. When all the symptoms, instead of passing off, worsen so that within a quarter or a half hour, the subject is dead. In the dog, such death at the onset is rare. In most instances, following the anaphylactic shock, the dog revives. After, 13, after 15 or 30 minutes, he gets to his feet, staggering a bit, regains feeling and consciousness, and is left with only blood diarrhea still persisting from the anaphylaxis. Often death takes place during the night following the injection, but constantly after a period of apparent recovery. In the rabbit, according to Arthas, respiration becomes polynuic. The animal falls on its side, throws its head back, makes running movements with its legs, and then suddenly breathing stops. Heart failure is systolic, and death ensues within a couple of minutes. Arthas also observed some interesting local effects of anaphylaxis in the rabbit. The second injection being given in the same ear as the initial injection, ulcers and gangrene appear, although there are almost no general symptoms. This local effect of anaphylaxis is often called the Arthas phenomenon. The guinea pig is extremely sensitive to anaphylaxis. If the anaphylaxis is just right, only symptoms of itching, excitation, and heightened breathing appear. Often the animal falls on its side, sometimes in violent convulsions, sometimes on the contrary paralyzed and powerless. In both of these cases, death takes place fast, and it's almost a matter of seconds between the injection and the final failure of the heart. Anaphylaxis has been observed in all animals. The horse, the goat, the ox, the rat, the pigeon, the duck, and even recently in frogs. Anaphylaxis takes place also in human subjects and has caused death in certain instances. It's indeed probable that sudden death following the bursting of a hydatid cyst is an anaphylactic phenomenon. Some years back, I was in Brazil, and I heard the story of a doctor who had given himself a preventative injection of anti-plague serum. The next year, a new outbreak of plague was feared, so he persuaded his students to have a preventative injection of the same serum. He set the example by giving himself another one. This was, however, an unleashing injection, and his body had been affected by the first. The second injection was fatal, and within two hours, he was dead. Now, however, 
the effects of anaphylaxis in mankind are very well known. Two doctors from Vienna, Perquet and Schick, have studied the matter with the greatest care. They have described serum sickness, serum crankite, in children subjected to injections of diphtheria serum, and they saw that it was in most cases an anaphylactic phenomenon. It's only in the rarest cases that the first injection is productive of immediate reaction. When it comes to the second injection, an immediate reaction follows for 90% of the cases. That is to say, when the period between the first and second injection is from 10 to 30 days, the symptoms to be observed are very close to symptoms observed in animal subjects. Uticaria, ethema, pangs of pain, itching, and in the worst cases, demisyncope with nausea, vomiting, hyperthermia, edema over the whole skin area, and general urticaria. Thus, by comparison of anaphylactic effects in man and the animals, it will be seen that they are akin. It is as if poison had been produced, which reacts upon the nervous system, especially on the vasomotor nerves of the trophic nerves of the skin. It's now opportune to examine the substances apt to develop the anaphylactic state. They can be defined very simply by using a fairly arbitrary system of classification, which groups substances in colloids on the one hand and crystalloids on the other. Crystalloids are on the whole non-active. I'm not aware of any successful attempt to induce anaphylaxis by one crystallizable salt or by any alkaloid. On the other hand, all the proteins without exception produce anaphylaxis. One has seen this with all sera, milks, organic extracts whatsoever, all vegetable extracts, microbial protein toxins, yeast cells, dead microbial bodies. It would be of more interest now to find a protein which does not produce anaphylaxis than to find one that does. But what is above all important is to know the degree of specificity of these injections. At first sight, it looks as if the specificity is pushed very far. For example, if the preparatory injection is of goat's milk, then the unleashing injection will be much stronger and will have more intensive effects if made from goat's milk than if made from cows or sheeps. Again, for the unleashing injection of horse serum to take maximum effect, the first injection should also be of horse serum. It's obvious that the animal in this case is still somewhat sensitive to a second injection with serum from a dog or rabbit, but the effect is far less. It is thus permitted to conclude that there is specificity, that is to say necessary identity, between the preparatory and the unleashing injection. I'll be coming back to the meaning of this term, specificity. First, I will mention a curious use of which anaphylaxis has been put in forensic medicine. On this principle, that there is specificity. Suppose for the sake of example, some blood drops of unknown provenance, which however must be discovered in the name of medical jurisprudence. Let us say it has to be established whether the blood is human or of a dog or a pig or an ox. Guinea pigs are used. One is injected with human serum, another with dog serum, another with ox serum, another with pig serum. Then one month later, the blood of unknown provenance is made into a water solution. The same small quantity of the unknown blood is then injected into each of the guinea pigs in turn. If one of them shows morbid symptoms and dies, for example, the guinea pig that had the human blood serum injection, then we will conclude that the blood in question was in fact human blood. I will recount at this point another experiment, which was out of the ordinary. 
Flesh was taken from the mummified form of a man, three or four thousand years old. Muscle extract was made from this. The injection of this fluid into guinea pigs made them sensitive to muscle serum and to human muscle serum only. This would show, where necessary, that the chemical components of the human body have undergone no great variation in the course of the last 4,000 years. This series of evidence gives good reason for recognizing the specificity of anaphylaxis. However, there must be no overstatement. Let us note that guinea pigs, sensitive to cow milk serum, are not altogether non-sensitive to goat or sheep milk serum, although their preparatory injection was only of cow milk serum. Two further series of observations I have made quite recently do lead me to question the hard and fast rules for specificity in anaphylaxis. One is tempted to lay down. First, when I gave a preparatory injection of crepitin and I determined one month later the emetic dose, that means the dose causing vomiting, of apomorphine, I saw that with normal dogs, a dose of apomorphine hydrochloride equal to 0.00275 of the salt per kilogram caused vomiting in 21% of the dogs, whereas with dogs initially injected with crepitin for the same dose of apomorphine hydrochloride, vomiting ensued in 63% of them. Anaphylactic dogs are thus more sensitive to apomorphine than normal dogs, and it follows that there exists general anaphylaxis as apomorphine in no way resembles crepitin. Further, the second experiment to be adduced against the specificity of anaphylaxis I conducted with two kinds of toxal albumin. Extracted from the actinia, a substance which I named congestin, as its property is to bring on grave congestion of the circulatory system in the intestines and stomach. Two congestins may be prepared at some pains. Yellow congestin, soluble in a fluid containing 50% alcohol, and black congestin, completely insoluble in a fluid containing 25% alcohol. Now I was able to show that black congestion is not unleashing, but is better as the preparatory injection than the yellow congestion. This gives us authority for thinking that the sensitizing or preparatory property and the unleashing property belong to allied protein groups, but not identical ones. Biological chemistry will no doubt unravel these two substances. In practice, the two substances, preparatory and unleashing, are almost always lined up together so that we have a near right to pronounce on strict specificity. Another experiment of prime importance is this, for it shows the very nature of the anaphylactic process. In April 1907, I showed that the injection of serum from an anaphylacticized dog induced an anaphylactic state in untreated dogs, as if this serum contained the toxic, toxic substance which activates the unleashing injection. With actinocongestin, the experiment is clear-cut. Almost harmless doses caused death within a matter of hours in dogs that had not been anaphylacticized, but it had injections of serum from, from anaphylacticized animals. This is what is known as pan, passive anaphylaxis. At about the same time, in May of, and June 1907, Gay in Southern in America and Otto in Germany also showed quite clearly that passive anaphylaxis exists. It's become one of the classic tenets of anaphylaxis. Another finding that I call anaphylaxis in vitro allowed me, as it were, to synthesize the poison that is released during the unleashing injection. The experiment worked best with crepitin. The immediate toxic effect of a certain dosage of crepitin was first determined, say of 0.004 grams. Then serum is taken from an animal anaphylacticized by crepitin, and this serum is dissolved 0.004 grams of crepitin. This injection is harmless, providing the crepitin 
have been diluted with water. It's, however, very offensive when the crepitin is dissolved in serum from a dog that's been anaphylacticized. It must thus be admitted that by some chemical combination, the crepitin in conjunction with the unknown substance in the anaphylactic serum has given rise to a veritable poison. The effects of this new poison are extremely strong, as the following experiment will show. It was carried out on a dog that had been given an active dose of crepitin mixed with the anaphylactic serum. Severe vomiting, diarrhea, rectal tenesmus, unable to keep standing, she urinates under herself, the pupils are dilated, the eyes haggard, complete mind blindness, near total failure of reflexes, deep unconsciousness, breathing dyspneic, heartbeat faint and very fast, pulse barely perceptible, dead in 36 hours. Thus the mixture of the antigen with the blood of an animal anaphylacticized by this same antigen produces a strong violent poison which is different from the antigen itself. To evaluate this reaction, we must mention a valuable experiment of Claude Bernard carried out long ago. Bitter almonds contain two substances, amygdalin, which is harmless, and emulsin, which is harmless too. Animal subjects survive an injection of either amygdalin or emulsin, but emulsin is a diastase and has the property of breaking up amygdalin, liberating hydrocyanic acid, which is one of the most virulent toxic gases known. Thus, if an animal has been given amygdalin, is then injected with emulsin, hydrocyanide acid, hydrocyanic acid will be formed in the bloodstream and death will take place at once. Yet injected separately, neither the amygdalin nor the emulsin has any effect. It is just the same with anaphylactic serum and the antigen. Separate, they are harmless. Together, they are fatal. A simple hypothesis suggests itself, even though Wolf Eisner has not yet been able to accept it. Let us assume the existence of a substance in the anaphylacticized blood, which we will call toxigenin. It is in itself harmless as animals have it in the blood and seem to enjoy good health. It may moreover be injected into, an, into other animal subjects without harm. But if toxigenin is mixed with antigen, then a new poison is produced, which has immediate and serious consequences. This poison, derived as it is from the antigen, I propose to call apotoxin. The chemical reaction is straightforward. Toxigenin plus antigen equals apotoxin. This appears to be a general law of biological chemistry, that bodies that are non-active and harmless in themselves become harmful and activated when in reaction one to the other. Trypsin is non-active when, when it has not been in contact with enterokinase. The sperm must perforce contact the ovum in order for fertilization to take place. Hydrochloric acid must contact pepsin for digestion. All workers on anaphylaxis have had to assume the existence of this sensitizing substance that I called toxigenin. Bezredka later called it sensibilisin, while Friedberger called it anaphylatoxin. Anaphylatoxin. <laughs> the name matters little. The fact is that there exists in anaphylacticized blood a substance harmless in itself, but which releases a strong poison when mixed with the antigen. I omit the details of the successful experiments undertaken by Bezredka on anaphylaxis. Together with the painstaking work of Friedberger and his pupils on deviation of the complement, I will only mention the course of my own original research, for I have no hope in this lecture of covering the whole field of anaphylaxis research. It's relevant here to indicate the relationship I've been able to establish between leukocytosis and anaphylaxis. 
a relationship that's hard to grasp without elaborate techniques and prolonged observations. All my experiments have been conducted on dogs with the help of my friend P. Lassablier, who did the calculations. The number of white corpuscles or leukocytes in the normal dog is 100 per hundredth of a millimeter cubic on average, varying from 70 to 130. In animals, now that have been anaphylacticized, even after a considerable time lag of, say, six months, when they appear to be completely normal and in perfect health, the number of leukocytes reaches and often exceeds 200. An initial injection which makes the body anaphylactic, therefore, induces a marked leukocytosis, and this is the only symptom that can be observed. With weaker doses of antigen, and with antigens that are harmless or practically so, such as peptin, the anaphylactic leukocytosis does not last as long, but is nevertheless pronounced. A quantity of peptone equal to 0.005 per kilo live weight will still give leukocytosis and bring about either immunity or anaphylaxis. There's no reaction more sensitive than that of leukocytosis. My systematic analysis of this subtle phenomenon, it seems clear to me that certain conclusions may be made which would have been utterly out of the question otherwise. I will cite as illustration some experiments which I'm still making on the action of chloroform on dogs. On a dog chloroformed for the first time, the number of leukocytes in the blood undergoes no modification, either under the anesthetic or after, whether on the second or the tenth or the twentieth day. If, however, a second chloroformation is carried out a month or so after the first, in conditions as nearly identical with the first as may be permissible, then on the third or the fourth or the fifth day in particular, severe leukocytosis will appear, reaching 220 or 250 leukocytes. What is the explanation of this curious phenomenon? There could be no question of real anaphylaxis, for anaphylaxis is always severe, immediate, and terrible, whereas in this instance the leukocytosis only appeared on the third or the fourth day. I have necessarily arrived at the following hypothesis, namely, that the chloroform works on the hepatic cells and causes the breakup of certain protein substances in them, which pass thence to the bloodstream. It is, if it is the first time that these proteins have been released to reach the blood, then there's no leukocytic reaction. If after an interval of three weeks, a new breakup takes place in the liver as a result of the second chloroformization, then this behaves like a second protein injection, the unleashing injection on an anaphylacticized animal. There does exist then, besides direct anaphylaxis, an indirect anaphylaxis about which little so far is known. But it seems that indirect anaphylaxis greatly widens the scope of anaphylactic action. Anaphylactic phenomena have been the subject of much medical research. It would take too long even to list, as I have not myself undertaken work in this respect. I forbear to dwell on it. I cannot, however, pass over the possible relationship between anaphylaxis and tuberculin reactions. This topic is highly controversial and undoubtedly worthy of further studies. From the start of our research on anaphylaxis, we noticed the analogy existing between anaphylaxis and sensitivity of tuberculosis animals to tuberculin. The admirable contributions of R. Koch, which has since been borne out by numberless experiments undertaken by others, showed that a normal animal does not react to tuberculin, whereas tuberculous animals do react to doses a thousand times weaker. What is this heightened sensitivity, if not anaphylaxis? When it came to question of detail, considerable differences were found to appear. In fact, a first injection of tuberculin does not make normal animals sensitive to a second injection. The blood of tuberculous animals 
does not induce passive anaphylaxis. Lastly, the anaphylactic reaction is on the whole one of hypothermy, while the tuberculin injection on tuberculous subjects always causes hyperthermy. However, I do not believe that these are fundamental objections. At most, they prove that the growth of the cock bacillus produces preparatory substances which are not to be found in tuberculin. Tuberculin contains unleashing substances, but the preparatory substances are lacking, probably because the numerous chemical changes that must take place before the tuberculin can be extracted from tuberculous creatures have themselves caused change in the preparatory substance. I am of the firm belief that in the animal organism infected by the tubercle bacillus, the infection creates substances that act as preparatory, but which are not found in tuberculin as we use it. This is not paradoxical at all. It may be thought that general application can be made of this anaphylactic method of diagnosis. Two methods lie open. One, the patient may be given a subcutaneous injection of specific serum to see if he's sensitive to the reaction. The other is to take the patient's serum and inject it into guinea pigs, seeing after the passage of two or three days if the guinea pigs are sensitive to such and such bacterial toxin. I consider whether this method of diagnosis by anaphylaxis might not be made use of in cancer. Taking cancer tumors and precipitating by alcohol the aqueous extract of such tumors, a precipitate results which admits of purification of being dissolved and pre precipitated in successive steps. This dry product can then be dissolved in water and injected into patients suffering from cancer. If anaphylactodiagnosis of cancer did really exist, this injection would produce a certain reaction. This was not the case. Some of my colleagues made the injection of this product into patients with cancer. The effects of the injection were absolutely nil. While on the subject of negative experiments, I wish to say a word on what I call homogenic anaphylaxis. The aim was to discover if the injection into an animal of blood from another subject of the same species provokes a stronger reaction at the second injection than at the first, always given the same source for the transfusion in both cases. Here again, the results were absolutely nil. A dog A was injected with 70 grams per kilo of blood from another dog B. Not much happened. A month later, the same dog A that had been treated was given a further injection of 70 gram per kilo of blood from the same transfusion source, dog B. No symptom was observed. It seems thus there is no such thing as homogenic anaphylaxis, and the blood of one species of animal injected into an animal of the same kind is harmless both at the first and at the second injection. To date, all experiments mentioned above have been carried out by parenteral injections. That is to say that the substance introduced into the blood was introduced by other means than the digestion, and namely by means of subcutaneous, intravenous, intraspinal, and peritoneal injections. But there's also anaphylaxis which comes after ingestion by way of the digestive system. This is elementary anaphylaxis and it follows ingestion by the digestive duct. It was for the first time demonstrated by Rousseau and Anderson in 1906 that guinea pigs were sensitive to horse serum after first ingesting horse serum by way of the digestive tract. It should be understood that the term elementary anaphylaxis does not signify anaphylaxis by elementary substances, but anaphylaxis by the introduction of the anaphylacticizing substance by way of the digestive channels. Elementary anaphylaxis is characterized by the antigen, whether elementary or not, being introduced into the organism by means of the digestive tube. Introduction by the rectal duct is not included, as the essential feature of elementary ingestion is absent, which is the modification of the antigen by the digestive juices.
Elementary anaphylaxis has been studied on various hands since Rosineau and Anderson, but the results are not so far constant nor uniform. I've tried to tackle the problem from another angle, that is to see under what conditions substances introduced into the stomach can pass into the blood. I used a reagent that is extremely sensitive, namely, namely leukocytosis. A dog is given cooked meat, no leukocytosis results. A dog is given raw meat, even one-fifth in quantity compared to the cooked meat, then in three or four hours' time, leukocytosis results. The most likely and simplistic explanation is that when cooked meat is ingested, all the proteins have become non-soluble and cannot be made soluble except by the action of digestive juices, pepsin, trypsin, and erepsin. The products of the breakup of the protein that are formed are non-toxic and do not induce the leukocytic reaction. It's therefore not surprising that cooked meat should be ingested without affecting the leukocytes, for no soluble protein has been introduced into the stomach. And the only proteins which can pass it are those that have been modified, transformed, and homogenized by the digestive juices. Now, if muscle serum or raw meat is ingested, then soluble proteins are introduced into the stomach. The digestive juices have powerful action, but it's probable that part of the protein escapes and certain particles pass into the circulation, thus affecting a true antigen infection injection, which can thus set off the leukocyte reaction. <clears throat> it follows that each time soluble protein is introduced by the digestive channels, anaphylactic reaction may result, as it is equivalent to an antigen injection. This may explain away the divergences of opinion among physiologists in respect of alimentary anaphylaxis for following the introduction of a protein, depending on whether it is soluble or not, whether it is absorbed or not, whether it is resistant to the action of the ferments or not. It will or will not penetrate into the bloodstream. In fact, I've been able with crepitin to cause a clear instance of alimentary anaphylaxis. I have indicated that there are three methods of alimentary anaphylaxis. Let us call the alimentary ingestion A and the parenteral injection P. The following combinations are possible. One, a preparatory A releasing. Two, a preparatory P releasing. Three, P preparatory A releasing. Even in the first of these three cases, A plus A, where the anaphylaxis is strictly alimentary, for the initial ingestion as well as the subsequent ingestion, there is no doubt about anaphylaxis having taken place. When a dog ingests crepitin for the first time, he never vomits. When he injects it for the second time, some three weeks later, he always vomits. This is the anaphylactic protective vomit. In the second case, A plus P, the preparatory ingestion, injection, yeah, ingestion being alimentary and the releasing injection parenteral, the results are clearer still. In effect, the anaphylactic shock is violent and plainly proves that a small quantity of crepitin must, must have escaped the digestive juices at the first ingestion and passed through the blood, as the lasting leukocytosis to be found in the animals that have, been in, that have ingested crepitin also shows. I have observed in this connection a remarkable fact, a period of one year between the initial ingestion and the subsequent parenteral injection. A dog ingested in June of 1911 a strong dose of crepitin and survived. Whatever the dose, it is not possible to poison dogs by ingesting crepitin. After one year had passed in June 1912, this dog had a harmless crepitin injection and died within an hour and a half as, it, as if struck by lightning. The death of a dog at this speed from anaphylactic shock is very rare indeed. To these experiments, I must add the work of Gideon Wells and Thomas Osborne. In January 1911, they made a close study of the anaphylacticizing 
and immunizing action of vegetable proteins. The general conclusion is as expected, but nevertheless necessary to be shown. One, through the digestive mucous membranes never passes more than tiny amounts of colloids, but sometimes it does pass them. Two, these minute amounts are enough on occasion to cause the anaphylactic state either preparatory or unleashing. Three, the amounts of colloids that pass into the digestive juices are weak enough to give immunity rather than anaphylaxis, especially if it be remembered that most are cases of ingestion repeated and increased at various intervals, all which conditions favor anti-anaphylaxis immunity rather than true anaphylaxis. These findings in the field of elementary anaphylaxis are perhaps not without importance to clinical medicine. It may be that many cases of dyspepsia are nothing more than light attacks of anaphylaxis. Doctors have long found that regular diet on strictly uniform lines was to be preferred to all other regimens. It is as if by the repeated ingestion of one same pro some protein in substance, the organism had accustomed itself to it and had immunized itself against this usual antigen. No need to go over the more extraordinary aspects of elementary anaphylaxis that had hitherto remained unexplained. It has long been known that some people are sensitive to cheese, or to strawberries, or to fish, or to shellfish, or to eggs, or even to milk. Now the symptoms to be seen in such individuals on ingesting such and such foods are analogous to the effects of anaphylaxis. Acute stomach pains, vomiting, diarrhea, colic, erythema, urticaria, severe itching, and sometimes cardiac troubles and fever. We now know that these are anaphylactic phenomena. This has become a pathological commonplace. We shall conclude by reiterating the various phenomena and attempting to establish their import in general terms. In the first place, anaphylaxis, like immunization, creates humoral differentiations between different individuals. A guinea pig that is anaphylacticized by horse serum will not be identical to untreated guinea pigs, nor to guinea pigs anaphylacticized by ox or dog serum. This means that over and above the individual differences due to diverse means of immunization, there are individual differences due to diverse anaphylactizations. One has only to think of the innumerable quantity of substances that are anaphylacticizing and the substances that can immunize, and one will conclude that the chemical or humoral diversity is so to say unlimited with the different individuals. To be different from other members of the same species, an animal has only to receive into its blood a small quantity of alien protein, which anaphylactizes him in a special way, or for a microbe to evolve in his blood, which gives him immunity in a special way. In the course of some years' lifespan, the same organism that is unique will accumulate immunities or anaphylaxia that appertain to it, diversely grouped in diverse subjects until each one of these persons will differ from all others. Each one of us, by our chemical makeup, above all by our blood and probably also by the protoplasm of each cell, is himself and no one else. In other words, he has a humoral personality. We all know very well what the personality of the psyche is. The multiplicity and the variety of our memories make each one of us different from all other human beings. We all have a body of stored impressions which preclude our being confused with any other specimen of our kind. Nothing could be clearer than this idea of the personality in terms of psyche, which stands to reason and is valid in all human conscience. Now, in the light of notions of immunity and of anaphylaxis, we can conceive of another personality in juxtaposition to the moral personality, and that is the humoral personality, which makes us different from other men by the chemical makeup of our humors. This is an entirely new idea. It was thought up to now, perhaps from lack of afterthought, 
that with individuals of the same age, race, and sex, the humors would no doubt be chemically identical. Well, it's not like that at all. Every living being, though presenting the strongest resemblances to others of his species, has his own characteristics so that he is himself and not somebody else. That means that henceforth study of the physiology of the species is no longer enough. Another physiology must be taken up, which is very difficult and barely broached, namely that of the individual. It may be asked how anaphylaxis fits into that general law, which admits of no exceptions, that living organisms exist in an optimum state of protection. It does indeed seem absurd that an organic disposition should make beings more fragile, more susceptible to poisons, for in most cases everything in living beings seems disposed to assure them a greater power of resistance. But some reflection on the final aim of anaphylaxis will give the answer. It is in fact important that animal species are of determined chemical entity. If following the hazard of ingestion or injection, alien proteins were found in the cellular juices as part of our humors, then the chemical makeup of beings would be modified and consequently perverted. Crystalloids dialyse through membranes and are speedily eliminated. In a few days, even in a few hours, they're completely gone. Colloids, however, that no dialysis can eliminate, do not disappear once they have penetrated to the blood. They fix on cellules and end up by being integral to them. Grave danger that would thus face the animal species were they not nicely balanced in their hereditary chemical makeup. If heterogeneous substances got fixed into our cellules and definitely intermingled with our humors, that would be the end of the chemical constitution of each animal species, which is the fruit of slow evolution down the generations. And all the progress that has been achieved through selection and heredity would be lost. It does not matter much that the individual becomes more vulnerable in this regard. There's something more important than the salvation of the person, and that is the integral preservation of the race. In other words, to formulate the hypotheses in somewhat abstract terms, but clear ones all the same, the life of the individual is less important than the stability of the species. Anaphylaxis, perhaps a sorry matter for the individual, is necessary to the species, often to the detriment of the individual. The individual may perish, it does not matter. The species must at any time keep its organic integrity intact. Anaphylaxis depends, de, sorry, anaphylaxis defends the species against the peril of adulteration. We are so constituted that we can never receive other proteins into the blood than those that have been modified by digestive juices. Every time alien protein penetrates by effraction, the organism suffers and becomes resistant. This resistance lies in increased sensitivity, a sort of revolt against the second parenteral injection, which would be fatal. At the first injection, the organism was taken by surprise and did not resist. At the second injection, the organism mans its defenses and answers by the anaphylactic shock. Seen in these terms, anaphylaxis is a universal defense mechanism against the penetration of heterogeneous substances in the blood, whence they cannot be eliminated. That's the end of the speech. So let me dissolve the mystery and unbear the lead. This speech was given by a man named Charles Richet. The speech was given at his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. The year was 1913. What he was discussing was cutting-edge science in 1913, but today it's considered outdated, fake news, and speech worthy of cancellation. Did the human body change that much? Is this info no longer valuable because basic physiology has changed so much? I don't think so. Let's talk about the basics of what he just said. In his day, it was believed 
that if a person was exposed to a poison and they did consider viruses and bacteria to be poisons, then there were only two possible responses in the human body. The first response was that there would be no response, and if the person received a second dose a month later, the body's response would be exactly the same as the first time. The other possible response was that the body would develop some immunity, and upon getting a second dose, the body's response would be less. What he discovered that caused him to win the Nobel Prize and to be labeled as the father of anaphylaxis was the fact that there was a third response. Not only did he discover and prove the third response, but he demonstrated that his third response was actually by far the most likely response. He did this in the face of a vaccine industry, albeit nothing like what it is today and nowhere near as powerful, that was built on the presumption that the first response, the one that would lead to a decrease in reaction, was the only response, when in fact it's actually the least likely response of all three. When we get right down to it, isn't that the same thing the population has been taught to believe today? Over a hundred years later, and the public are still vulnerable to lies that are told to them simply because they believe something that was disproven with experimentation over a hundred years ago and won a man a Nobel Prize. As Mark Twain said, it's easier to fool a man than it is to convince him he's been fooled. A few years ago, at the Meeting of the Minds, I presented a Japanese study where they found that just because a person responds to the first dose of vaccine with a diminished sensitivity to the ingredients does not guarantee that they always will. In fact, the purpose of the study was to demonstrate that vaccines are beneficial as long as the patient responds with decreased sensitivity. However, the moment the patient responds with increased sensitivity, they will never again respond in decreased sensitivity. And unless the vaccines are discontinued, the increased sensitivity will lead to guess what? That's right, anaphylaxis. Furthermore, they suggest that every vaccine recipient must be examined post-vaccination to determine which kind of reaction they had and it should never just be assumed. I guess the point of this has less to do with the anaphylactic reaction and more to do with the fact that we have known this for over a century, yet you'll be told that it's wrong, or at the very least, it's incomplete knowledge. Neither of the two is true, as this anaphylactic reaction perfectly describes everything we've observed for decades since the industry decided it was impossible to create an overreaction. Even more, when a person, or even worse, a child, goes into anaphylactic shock, they will say, well, we really didn't, don't know why that happened. Maybe it was some kind of allergy. Basically, what they're saying is maybe you're just weak, and that's why you nearly died from something that poses no danger to the rest of us. But that's not true. Anaphylaxis, as it was described over 100 years ago, is the answer to that question. It just goes to show that the student is only as good as the quantity of the education they receive. If you don't teach anaphylaxis, then no doctor will know it or understand it. Previously, I talked about Gresham's Law, and this is a perfect example of how bad information drives out good information. What you're left with is the appearance of knowledge without any of its substance. Sadly, this is true in chiropractic as well. That's certainly a topic for another time, but the secret knowledge of the autonomic nervous system and not over-adjusting your patient has quickly been replaced with the belief that every adjustment has a positive autonomic influence and it's impossible to over-adjust your patient. They can't both be true. It's the wise chiropractor who seeks out the truth and practices it daily. Well, I hope you found this episode helpful. I hope I've armed you with some facts you can share with your patients to help them to see the light of true health as well. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.